the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, an Amalekite man learns the hard way that killing the Lord's anointed and then telling David has deadly consequences. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 5. Once again, that's 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 5. Well, this news is awful. It says they have fallen down in battle, many of the people, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. But when David hears this news, he doesn't believe it at first. Verse 5, and David said unto the young man that told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? And the young man that told him said, Well, as I happened by chance upon Milk Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear. And lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me. And I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, Stand, or literally stand over me, I pray you upon me and slay me for anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. So this guy claims that he just happened by chance to be at, get Mount Gilboa, run into Saul. He happened by chance to just be in the thickest part of the battle where Saul is kind of being run down by the Philistine archers that we learned about, and that Saul, as he's being chased by, he actually mentions the chariots, which we had no mention of that in 1 Samuel. Chariots and the horsemen were chasing him. That he found Saul in in a bad state. Uh, It could be that he was wounded. It could just be that he knew he he, he was a dead man. And so he said, please stand over me and kill me because I can't get away, you know, so the question, of course, is, is, is this guy telling the truth? Because his account contradicts what we learned in 1 Samuel 31, verse 5, which tells us very clearly, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he didn't say dying, he says when he saw that Saul was dead, he committed suicide as well. So it is possible that Saul's suicide attempt failed, He was still alive, and he was somehow trying to get away, and then the Philistines discovered him, and that this guy then finished the job. I always taught it that way in the past. 
However, I've discovered some issues with that view as I've studied this time through. As I said earlier, it doesn't say that Saul's armor bearer thought Saul was dead. He said Saul, it said he saw Saul was dead. And then later on in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, David references his conversation with this young man and explains that this young man had disingenuous motives. David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beriathite, and said unto them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of all adversity, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his news. So as this guy is sharing this with David, He's not in mourning. He's kind of excited. He's thinking he's got good news for David. He's saying, David, you don't have to be on the run anymore. I killed the guy that wants you dead. Can I get a sticker? (laughs) Student of the day, something, lollipop. Reward. David said he was after a reward. So I wouldn't argue with anybody over it because either thing is possible. It's possible Saul's suicide attempt failed. That would be the, that'd be the crowning jewel of Saul's reign. But I do believe now this guy was lying. We know that the Amalekites were scavengers, and so it is more likely that this guy swooped in to plunder the dead while the Philistines were still chasing the fleeing Israelis. However it went down, this guy makes it clear why he's come to David in his closing words. Look at the end of verse 10 here in 2 Samuel 1. And I took the crown that was upon his head, Saul's head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Saul was my old boss, but you're my boss now, David. And here's the crown and his armband. It must have been some type of an important armband that Saul wore. This young man sought to turn someone else's calamity into his prosperity. And rejoicing at the expense of those who weep is never the heart of the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it tells us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? We're not to rejoice because someone else is weeping. Never. So, whether this guy's story is true or not, his whole attitude here is incorrect. Now, if this guy's story is true, even if it isn't true, it is ironic that the man who takes Saul's crown shouldn't even exist. God commanded Saul to wipe out every last Amalekite, but he disobeyed. So this is a sad picture of what happens when We don't deal severely with our flesh. We have already talked about multiple times in our study that the Amalekites are like a picture of our flesh. It plunders us in our most vulnerable moments. It kicks us when we're down. And that's why Jesus tells us to be merciful towards others' shortcomings, (laughs) but very serious in how we handle our own. Isn't it funny we do the exact opposite? Like we're ready to pounce when someone else blows it. But when we do, we've got reasons, right? We've got explanations, justifications, understandings. We've got all sorts of reasons why, well, it's not as bad as it seems. Where with someone else, we're ready to go right to it. 
And that's the exact opposite of how Jesus tells us to be. In Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30, Jesus utters that famous phrase, if your eye causes you to sin, bring it close and it's okay. It's okay. Is that what he says? No, it's violent. Pluck it out. Jesus, come on, man. I pluck my own eyeball out? Yeah, it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both eyes. If your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Chop it off, Jesus. I'd have nothing left if I did that. No, I wouldn't have feet. I wouldn't have a nose. I wouldn't have eyes. I wouldn't have ears. I certainly wouldn't have a mouth. Clearly, the point that Jesus is making is that be serious with your own sin. But with other people's, be a lot more gracious. We cannot give our flesh an inch because it's not going to play fair. It's not going to cut any deals with us that it keeps. It will always bail. It will always lead us to a place that is not for our good. So it's not worthy of babying. Now this young man, this Amalekite, he seems to have two hopes here. The best result, of course, is that, well, David is super happy now because his enemy Saul is dead, his heir is dead, and I'm the hero who dealt the final blow. I get to be one of David's mighty men now. The lesser hope is that, well, David will see that he showed mercy to Saul. He put him out of his misery. And so he gets some reward still for at least being merciful and then bringing the crown to David. But David's reaction fits neither of those hopes. Look at verse 11 in 2 Samuel 1. Then David took hold on his clothes and he rent them. This word is really strong. It means he was harsh with his clothes, severe. This was not just an act. Well, this is what I have to do because the king's dead. He's my father-in-law and I've got to show I'm mourning. I mean, you know, rip a sleeve. He gets violent with his clothing here. He rips his clothing. And then notice it says, likewise, all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. They weren't fasting and praying. They didn't eat because they were too sad to eat. You ever been there? They were depressed. This is awful news. They were heartbroken. And while we can understand every line there, there's one that's difficult. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul. Certainly their tears are not just for Saul. But the fact that the man who did them so much wrong is mourned for, meals are skipped over, speaks a lot of these men. Were they angry? Had they been angry with Saul? Yes. Had they been betrayed by Saul? Yes. But these were not disloyal citizens. If something could have been worked out with Saul, if, if, if Saul had let them, they would have followed him to the ends of the earth. 
These were loyal men, loyal citizens. But now, any hope of a happy ending to this mess, any dreams of of that hope coming true is now dead. Their, Their king is gone. The army of their people is slaughtered. Their nation is, in all essence, gone. You say, wait a minute, their nation's not gone. There's tons of people alive still in Israel. Yeah, I understand that. But we don't understand kingship in our country. In fact, it's a mark of our nation's DNA that we've rejected kingship. Whether that's good or bad, I'll, I'll leave others to decide and debate. But I will tell you this. When you don't understand kingship, it is very difficult to understand the Bible. Because we are unique in our cultural experience there. In our culture, we tend to see being a subject as a negative thing. It's why when I do weddings and we do the part where it says that the wife is going to make her vows, she's going to submit to her husband, you hear a hush over the crowd. He, is this 1905? I always hear it. Did he just say submit? We see being a subject as a negative thing. Just the very idea of being a subject. No, I'm not. I'm free. But the Bible views being a subject as a glorious privilege. And thus it views that when there's no king, you're a subject of no one. Now, our culture views being a subject of no one as freedom. But the cultures of the Bible view that as meaning you don't belong anywhere. And to anything. You see, David and his men are now left in no man's land. They know they can't go back to King Achish. There's no no going back to that. They're not Philistines. The last year and a half was a wasted year. But now they have no ties that bind them to their homeland. To anyone or anything. And they know that's how the rest of their people are feeling too. Where do we go from here? Who are we? What's the plan? And so they mourn. Some of the men they mourned were ungodly men. Many of the men they mourned were good men. But they mourn for all of them because there's not a single Israeli that wins upon hearing this news. Which is why David now confronts this young man. Verse 13 David said unto the young man that told him, where are you from? Because he knows he's he's an Amalekite. He's kind of suspicious about why an Amalekite would be in Israel's army. I mean, I'm trying to think of of something appropriate that without offending too many people. But maybe the closest equivalent you might get is one of Osama bin Laden's sons being in our army. What are you doing here? You, you don't belong here. You're an enemy. You're someone who thinks that we're the great Satan. Why, why are you in our army? That's what an Amalekite's like doing in the Israeli army. Where are you from? I don't buy your story. And he answered, I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. Israel was supposed to treat foreigners well. But this young man isn't exactly aware that David isn't feeling very friendly towards Amalekites right now. And he should have followed 
if indeed his story holds true, that this is how it went down with Saul, he should have followed the armor bearer's example who refused to kill Saul when he was commanded to instead of killing the Lord's anointed. And so in verse 14, David said unto him, How was it that you were not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That's exactly what the armor bearer felt. First Samuel 31, 4, Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not because he was so afraid. No. I'll do anything you tell me to, but not that. Because he feared what the Lord says above what his king said. Why were you not afraid? You, you claim Saul gave you a command, but you should have honored the Lord's command above that. You should have honored, honored the Lord's calling on Saul's life above his command. Apparently the guy has no excuse or answer. And so David called one of the young men and said unto him, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote the man, the Amalekite, that he died. And David said unto him, he doesn't feel guilty at all about this. He says, your blood be upon your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. We are innocent of your blood, of your death, because this is your fault. You confess to your guilt of murdering God's king. And for that, you cannot live. Verse 17 David now composes a song to honor Saul and Jonathan. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah. The King James says the use of the bow, but it it literally means the song of the bow. So that's the name of this song. He bade them teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So when it says here that David lamented, it means he sang a dirge, he composed an elegy with this lamentation, the song of mourning over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And this song, when David became king, he commanded the children of Judah. So we know this is early in his kingship. We'll get to that later. David did not become king of all Israel for quite a while. There's actually a civil war that's going to be fought in Israel with uh, Saul's one remaining son who's alive. But David will only be the king of Judah for, I think, the first six or seven years of his reign. And then he'll be the king of all Israel for the last 30-something years of his reign. But David, when he composed this song, he made them teach the children of Judah this song. And it was recorded in something called the Book of Jasher. Now, The book of Jasher is a book of songs and poetry that's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. It's these songs or these poems, they are about important points in Israel's history, important battles, important events. Sometimes people see that and they go, well, we're missing a book of the Bible. This is not a missing book of the Bible. People wrote other things back then that weren't inspired by God, just like people write things today that aren't inspired by God, okay? That the Bible references those works is simply acknowledging their existence, not that they were part of Scripture. It's referencing something, so as you read your Bible, go, oh, I know, I know, okay. And in the book of Jasher, we've had someone read that to us, and, you know, okay, now I know this, it's an important song. It made it into this history book or this book of poems from our history, of songs from our history. 
Verse 18 seems to indicate that David probably composed this song later on, not probably right this moment, uh, so that he could instruct everyone in Judah to honor Saul and Jonathan through singing it. But whenever David wrote it, it is a beautiful song. I, I mean, I would love for something like this to be sung at, at my memorial service if the Lord tarries, especially by somebody who didn't like me or someone that thought I, you know, I, I treated him horrible. Because it's a song that gives dignity to both Saul and Jonathan in death. Now, did David owe Saul that? No, he didn't owe Saul that. But David didn't do it because Saul deserved it. He did it because he loved Saul. Because there were good things to remember despite the awful things that happened. Listen, (laughs) if a betrayal hurts... It's because you care. If you didn't care, it probably wouldn't hurt so much. Maybe you might get mad. But it only hurts when you care. And so David had cared. He loved Saul. And there were good things to remember, even though there was lots of awful things that happened. So David begins with this dirge, this elegy by lamenting the loss of Saul and Jonathan. He says in verse 19, the beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places. How are the mighty fallen? Do not tell it in Gath. Do not publish it in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. David laments the loss of Saul and Jonathan because Israel's most beautiful part of their nation is now gone. The word beauty there in verse 19, it it refers to an ornament. Saul's family, Saul and Jonathan in particular, were like the, the bow, you know, or the star on top of the Christmas tree. I mean, the rest of the tree was beautiful. The rest of the decorations were beautiful, but these were that crowning gem. Now it's gone. Now they're gone. They were slain upon your high places. It means the the hilly places. Mount Gilboa is a big hill. How are the mighty fallen? The powerful? How they have fallen down? You don't get more powerful than Saul in Israel if he has been defeated, then how will the rest of the nation be victorious is the idea. This is bad. This is worthy of mourning. You think to yourself, if you, if you look at the facts, you think, David, this might actually be better for the nation. Like Saul's he's not a good king. But that's not how David sees it. In Jeremiah fifteen nineteen, there's a interesting section of scripture that has always amazed me. Jeremiah, and if you know Jeremiah's story, he loves his people. He's preaching truth to him, you know, time and time again, and they just hate him. I mean, they just hate him. They lock him up in a dungeon. They put him up in this cage, and they put him, you know, hanging from the, the side of the wall, you know, of the city. I mean, they just do all these awful things to him. And, and Jeremiah just loves him. He keeps preaching. He's crying out to God for him. And finally, He's had enough. I don't remember it is what happens, but he goes, that's it. I'm done. I can't, I can't, these people hate me. I'm done. I'm not telling them anything anymore. Lord, get them. 
Not praying for him anymore. Lord, just get him. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, I know you've been through a lot, Jeremiah. Let me share something with you. If you want to be like me, then you need to learn to extract, to take out the precious from the vile. And then you'll be like me. I think of a a similar story when Jonah goes in, he doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh, but finally he goes and preaches. And it's like the, the most like passionate, heartfelt, compassionate, see the lost get saved preaching message. He comes in and he goes, 40 days and judgment's coming. I'm out of here. And then he goes up on a hill to watch the fireworks. He goes up on a hill to wait for God to destroy the city. And of course, he's hot. And so God causes this plant to grow up and, and to give Jonah shade. And he's, oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so compassionate. You know, give me shade. And then the Lord causes this worm to come up and to eat the thing. And, and Jonah's like, Lord, what are you doing? You know? and, and then the Lord just says, don't you get it, Jonah? You got more compassion for this vine than you do for an entire city full of millions of people. There's this many kids in there who don't even know the difference between their right and their left hand. And you want me to just wipe them out? David's heart was like the Lord's here because he saw the valuable and the beautiful things in Saul. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.